Tonight, as we continue our talks on the sacrifice of the Mass, I thought the perfect backdrop would be the War Memorial Altar here in St. Wahlberg. So far, we've had the opportunity to see all of the, almost all of the altars in our church, and so now we're showing you another one. If you've not already seen it, it's a beautiful scene of the crucifixion with Our Lady and St. John the Evangelist at the foot of the cross, which is a perfect scene for us to describe now and to talk about the canon of the Mass. Uh, we left off with Canon Tanner at the Consecration. Now we continue with the part from the Unde et Memores until the end to the part where we come to the Paternoster, the Lord's Prayer. So, what should we be considering at this point? What will help us to better enter into the mystery of the Mass? Well, at the Consecration, we see, of course, that unlike any other sacrament, you have, you have two elements, of course. You have the bread and the wine, which are the matter, which will become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. And in the representation of the sacrifice and the sacramental sign of the sacrifice of the Mass, the bread and the wine, which become the body and blood of our Lord, are separated on the altar, and through this sacramental sign, we are placed before the bloody death of our Lord on the cross, that his body and blood will be separated by the sacrifice. So that's something we should consider at this point in the Mass. We are truly before the before the cross, we are in worship and in adoration and in humble supplication before God as we witness the, the sacrifice of our Lord. Now, this also explains to us one of the reasons why it's most fitting that the sacrifice of the Mass at this point during the canon, the most sacred part, is takes place largely in silence. So, if we imagine ourselves at the foot of the cross, what response is more fitting than silence, silent prayer? So this is something for people who are new to the traditional Mass, which often takes them a bit off guard. But if we think about it, if we enter into it, it helps us to understand better the, the link between the Mass and the cross, and also the correct attitude that we should bring to this mystery. The other thing we might consider with the, uh, the bread and wine become now the body and blood of our Lord, separate on the altar, we see both the, the death of our Lord, and later on it's important to understand that uh, the reun re uh, reunion of the, the two elements will give us the sign, the sacramental sign of the resurrection. So we have both the, the passion and death, but also the resurrection present to us in the Mass. Now, if the consecration brings us back in time, makes us think of the Last Supper, it's important to recognize that in the Mass, it's not the Last Supper that we're ending at. The Mass is not a commemoration of the Last Supper, because the Last Supper itself was in anticipation of the cross. So the point of the the, what we should be thinking about is so not, not so much the Last Supper, but that the Last Supper itself was an anticipation of the cross. That's what gives the, the actions of our Lord on the night of Holy Thursday.
Thursday meeting is what he's going to do the next day. So, at this point, we are considering our Lord on the cross, and it is fitting, as we said, to to respond with certain silence. In the Eastern liturgies, of the, uh, the, this part of the Mass is not silent, but it is hidden from view. It's behind a veil in Greek liturgy behind the iconostasis. So the sense of hearing is not taken away, but the sense of sight is taken away. Everything that's most sacred is, is veiled or removed from our sight or our hearing in one way or another. In terms of the beauty of the canon, something worth considering is this wonderful symmetry that it has. If you look at the prayers before, the consecration prayers after, you have six prayers before the consecration, and then six or seven after, depending on how you how you count them. So, getting to the prayers themselves that make up this second half of the canon after the consecration, we begin with the prayer Unde Memores. And it's important to recognize, as I said, here we have the union in this prayer of the death of our Lord, His resurrection, and His ascension. If Christ is our High Priest, He's not going to be able to continue to offer sacrifice unless He's alive. So he offers, he offers the sacrifice of the cross, but then he continues to intercede for us in heaven as a priest because he's living, and he's in heaven because he's ascended there. So this, uh, this, these three mysteries are always linked together. Now, another point we want to consider now that the sacrifice is, is taking place, the the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord is truly present. We offer this pure victim, this holy victim, this immaculate victim to the Father, according to the words of the prayer. And here the priest makes five, five signs of the cross. So three signs over the two elements together, and then two more signs, one over the bread, and then which has become the body, and then one over the chalice. So, these five signs make us think of the five wounds of our Lord on the cross. After the Unde Memoris, we have this prayer called the Superque Popizio, and it brings to mind Three sacrifices of the Old Testament, all three are from the book of Genesis. We have a reference to Abel, a reference to Abraham, and a reference to Melchizedek. Of course, Abel offered the sacrifice of his flock from his flock and was killed by his brother Cain. Abraham, the sacrifice of Isaac, and then Melchizedek will offer bread and wine. So all three of these sacrifices in some way prefigure the perfect sacrifice, what we've just referred to as a pure victim, a holy victim, an immaculate victim. And if we consider the greatness of these types in the Old Testament, they help lift us up and to see just how spectacular it is, what is going on before us. So, Jesus, for example, in the Gospel, is going to say to, to his Jewish audience, 
that when they see our Lord, that they're seeing something greater than Solomon. Something greater than Solomon is here. And he will say, not only that, but something greater than the temple is here. And if you, if you had a sense of the greatness of King Solomon, the sense of the greatness of the temple, to think that Jesus is much greater than that is, helps us lift up our conceptions. So in the same way, in the Mass, we can say something greater than Abel is here, something greater than Abraham is here, something greater than the sacrifice of Melchizedek is here. And then in the third prayer, we have this beautiful reference to the angel of God. It says, We most humbly beseech thee, Almighty God, to command that these offerings be borne by the hands of thy holy angel to thine altar on high, in the sight of thy divine majesty, that as many of us as at this altar shall partake of and receive the most holy body and blood of thy Son, may be filled with every heavenly blessing and grace of the same Christ our Lord. Amen. So, throughout the Mass, there is this continuous effort we need to make to, to think of both heaven and earth, of the union, that uh, the sacrifice of the cross that we are experiencing is, is linked to the great eternal Mass of heaven, the eternal liturgy in heaven. And we see the presence of the angels throughout the Mass and the Kyrie, if we think of the nine choirs, of course the Gloria, which I talked about before, where we uh, listen again to the angelic um, hymn of praise on the night of the nativity. Then also, of course, the, the Sanctus and the Preface also uh, bring, us, bring to mind for us the holy angels. And here again we have this reference to the holy angels, not to mention, of course, as well, the prayer of the blessing of incense at the offertory, where we ask for St. Michael, the Archangel's intercession. So, after those three prayers, we come to the memento, the commemoration of the dead. We see, see here again the kind of symmetry in the canon. Before the consecration, we remember the living. Here we remember the dead, and this is where the priest will insert his intentions for the Mass, although of course you should have them in heart already prior to coming to this moment. But also for you at home, for the faithful, something that can help your piety, something that can make the Mass more fruitful, is to bring your own intentions. We should always come to God not empty-handed, but we should, we should bring intentions to Him. So bring your intention to the Mass. You have the memento before the consecration for the living. Pray for people that you know who need graces who are living. And then afterward, think of those you know, your friends, family, benefactors, your enemies, of course, as well. And you can pray for them with the priest at the memento. After that, we come to the Nobis Cope Peccatoribus. This, this prayer begins, To us sinners also. The priest uh, raises his voice a little bit. He doesn't shout it out, but he raises his voice in sign of humility. And this also is similar to the communicantes, which comes before the consecration. So you have the memento of the living, memento of the dead, the communicantes, where we uh, remember all of the, of the saints. And here again in the Nobis Pope Peccatoribus, we're going to commemorate uh, the great martyrs and saints. 
And we see a sign of the antiquity, the, the, the ancient character of the Mass. We have these saints from the beginning, the foundation of the Church, uh, up to the 4th century, the final persecutions uh, under the Roman authorities under Diocletian. So we see, again, how just how old the Mass is, how old the canon especially is, and how worthy of enormous reverence and esteem. So, finally, and we could say so much more, but we have to wrap things up now, we come to the final doxology of the canon, the prayer Perpem Omnia, where the priest will make three signs of the cross over, over, the, over the elements of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. And then the periapsum. So what's interesting here is normally the priest makes a sign of the cross just with his hand, but then here he's going to take the sacred body of our Lord in the host and make the sign of the cross over the chalice three times, saying periapsum, et comipso, et inipso, and then twice off of the, away from the chalice, over the corporal. And he says, "Es tibi Deo Patri Omnipotenti, Unitate Spiritus Sancti." So, different authors have given different meanings for this. One that I like that I've read is that the three signs of the cross over the chalice remind us of the three hours that our Lord suffered on the cross, and then the two signs of the cross off of the chalice make us think of, of the death, the separation of body and soul of our Lord. And what's also interesting to know is that we make these two signs of the cross when we're speaking of uh, God the Father and of the Holy Ghost. So we have the presence of the three persons of the Trinity. Our Lord alone is incarnate, so it's fitting that the signs of the cross that, for, that represent the saving action of our Lord in some way unite His body and blood. The, the host is placed over the chalice, but then for the part where we speak of God the Father and God the Holy Ghost, then there's a separation. It's the, the host which makes the sign of the cross over the corporal, the chalice is uh, is not underneath for these two signs of the cross. So, our Lord in his in his death, his body and blood are separated, but also his body and soul, of course, are separated. But the Holy Trinity always remains united. The divine nature of our Lord cannot be separated from the divine nature of the Father and of the Holy Ghost. And also his human soul, even in death, is of course going to be, remain totally united to the Trinity because from the moment of his conception he has the beatific vision. He sees God. That's not going to change at his death. However, his human body will truly be separated from his soul and will truly uh, be dead until the resurrection. So, with that said, I hope that will help uh, nourish your spirituality, help nourish your 
assistance at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. The next part we'll come to is the Lord's Prayer, the Padre Noster. No uh, better way that the Church could complete this most holy prayer, but with the words of our Lord Himself, the words that He taught us. And not only are we using the words of Jesus Himself, but the priest is saying them in persona Christi with the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord present uh, before Him. And for all that, I will let uh, Deacon Palomar um, discuss that in our next segment. So please continue to join us uh, as we as we conclude and as we approach the Holy Feast of Our Lady's Immaculate Conception. <laughs> 